Welcome to Silicon Valley Vibes, a podcast from SVLG, a show that takes the temperature of the changemakers, leaders, and experts in America's one-of-a-kind innovation economy to get a sense of where we are and where we're going. I'm your AI announcer, Vivi. Today's show covers the startup culture of AI and the Uber take on EVs. Driving the important conversations are our SVLG hosts, Nadia Anderson, Chief of Staff for SVLG and SVP of Strategy, as well as her co-host, Peter Leroux Munoz, SVLG General Counsel and SVP of Tech and Innovation. Welcome to the show. I'm Nadia Anderson. And I'm Peter Leroux Munoz, and we're excited to be bringing you Silicon Valley Vibes. On this episode of SVV, we're going on a ride with Uber's global sustainability policy lead, Adam Gromis, who talks about how Uber is working to help drivers transition to zero emission vehicles. But first, I spent some time talking with startup founder Michael Vandy of Addy AI on his journey from being a small child in West Africa with a dream to create, all the way to becoming a founder and CEO of an AI tech startup here in Silicon Valley. Such a fascinating personal story on one of the continuing hot topics in the Valley, AI. Peter, anything you wanna give us as a preview before we jump in? Well, really, this is all about Michael's journey. Truly somebody who loved to create from an early age. He was inspired by family members and he came from Sierra Leone, didn't have a whole lot of, uh, of opportunity there, but he's also got a dream to go back and support those back in Africa. Let's take a listen. Michael, welcome to Silicon Valley Vibes. I'm excited to talk with you today about what it's like being the founder of an AI startup here in Silicon Valley. But first, can you talk a little bit about where you came from and what you think may have been the inspiration for getting into tech and ultimately founding your own startup? Uh, thank you for having me, Peter. Uh, I'm excited to be here with you. So a little bit about my background. I am from Freetown, Sierra Leone, which is a small coastal town in West Africa, born and raised. I grew up with a single mom who uh, from a very early age, just taught me the importance of education. She was a teacher. And it also happens that I was uh, particularly interested in building things. And in Sierra Leone, there wasn't a lot of like opportunity to build stuff. And so I got this present from my aunt, which was my mom's... Uh, my mom's friend, but in Sierra Leone, it's still like a community, so everyone just calls each other aunts and uncles. And it was this black and white computer with, uh, you know, those leapfrog toys with black and white displays programmed with a bunch of, of kids' games. And then I would press keys on the keyboard, pretending to write code as I had seen in movies. And then one time, the, the laptop crashed. And then it was the first time that I really thought, hey, I want to be able to be in a place where I can repair things, I can build things. And that was my first experience to tech. Now, I came to America in 2018 to study at the University of Baltimore. And it was a real cultural shift because coming to the U.S., it's a, a lot of diversity, a lot more diversity than we had in Sierra Leone. And it just so happens that I not only needed to be someone who's a builder, but someone who is a builder, but also being included in, in certain conversations. And so my journey from tech started with 
my aunt giving me a toy laptop when I was a kid. Michael, that is a great story. And what a journey you've taken to go from Africa here to Silicon Valley. Uh, that's truly quite an experience. And that's got to influence your worldview. What kind of perspective do you have on the innovation economy here in Silicon Valley, given your very unique background? There is a lot of room to transfer knowledge and transfer technology that's already so commonplace in Silicon Valley that is not it's non-existent uh, where I came from. And the only thing that's stopping that is the infrastructure to build those things. Primarily, it's software. It's easy to build software when you have the resources. But the resources in Africa, where I'm from, do not support most of the innovation that we have in Silicon Valley. And so I have this long-term vision where I'm in the Valley because there are opportunities to build and it has the resources and the foundation, but I want to spend a significant portion of my time once I have the resources to build some of that foundation in, in Africa where I came from, thinking of like fast internet speeds, being able to have accelerators for um, talented uh, individuals like I once was uh, back in, in Sierra Leone. And as an immigrant, you must have a unique perspective on what it is to fulfill the American dream. What is What does the American dream mean to you as an immigrant? I think the American dream to me is the liberty to pursue anything that I want to pursue and only getting my demographic data as the last thought that comes to my mind. And so it's not that it's not there, but it's the last thing that I think of. If I want to apply to prestigious university, the first thing I think of is with good grades, I can get in. And then I think of my demographics. So the American dream to me is having a level playing field for quantitative metrics and only thinking about qualitative demographics at, at, at the end. And um, that is something that I think I have been able to balance really well by focusing more on the quantitative like things that I can control, like getting higher test scores and then pursuing other things. Another thing I also think of as the American dream is to be able to assimilate into a culture that you know very little about and essentially just feel like home. Because I haven't been back to Sierra Leone in, in four years and I, I deeply miss it. But I also feel incredibly welcome in, in America as well. Michael, we're lucky to have you here in Silicon Valley contributing to our innovation ecosystem. Let's talk a little bit about Addy AI. What is this project that you're working on? And can you tell us a little bit more about what it does? Yes. So Addy AI is a platform that helps businesses be more efficient by um, helping them automate their day-to-day -day customer emails using AI. So we've built this platform that allows businesses to connect their data from various sources like websites and local files, and then train a specialized AI that can automatically respond to customer emails. 
very efficient use of resources. I know a lot of companies could use help in terms of dealing with their customer communications. So it sounds like there's going to be a huge market for it. You know, how did you come by this idea? It's an interesting story. I was building heads-up display interfaces for, for astronauts. And when I was working on that startup, I spent a lot of time crafting the perfect email and perfect tone for every single person. Uh, last year, 2022, I had a, a, a chance to have a coffee chat with some, someone I really, really admire. And so I didn't know how to send them a request for a coffee meeting. And so I asked my partner, who has an international business degree, she usually proofreads my emails. So I had this draft email. I said, hey, can you look this over? Do you think it's nice? Do you think it's going to convert? And she provided me suggestions. And I was like, well, what if I ask ChatGPT for suggestions? And at the time, ChatGPT had just been out for just a few days. And so I asked ChatGPT, and I kid you not, it spewed out the exact same thing that she told me, that my partner told me to, to write. And I was like, oh, there's definitely something here. And so over Christmas break, I started streaming on YouTube uh, for like 15 hours of streaming, just building this email assistant to just help me respond to my emails so I don't have to bother my, my partner anymore. Uh, her name's Addie, so I ended up calling the, the, the product Addie AI. Uh, I thought it would be cool to have a, a second Addie and not bother the original Addie. Uh, now, here's the interesting part. So I built it. I, I was working for me for a while, and then I just shared it on Twitter. I said, hey, this is something I built, and I think it's really interesting. And it gained tremendous interest. 13 million people saw the tweet. Elon Musk commented about it. The Node Coastal, a bunch of people around the Valley commented about it. And at the time, I didn't really want it to be a, a company. I was just like, it's something cool that I built for myself. But a lot of people were asking for access to it. And I was on a road trip from Oregon to California where I just built a sign-up page and 10,000 people signed up for it. And now I'm dedicating my time full-time to building this company. What are some of the lessons that you have learned about scaling an AI business? Things change almost every day. Something you do today might be obsolete tomorrow. And so I started writing uh, something called uh, a log where I write down everything that I do today. So like I, I look back on it. And some of the lessons I've learned is when you're scaling an AI company, you have to be able to tone out, especially in this climate, you have to be able to tone out some of the new and hype um, innovations that are happening uh, in the industry because most of them are not production ready. And so you have to be more leaning towards using production ready models or building specialized models and less about experimentation, at least for a core product. Now you could experiment with A-B testing and all these new models that come up. Uh, so that's, that's what I've learned from the product side. Now, from the business side, I have learned that it's incredibly competitive uh, scaling an AI company. And so there are different ways you could go about it by concentrating in one vertical that there aren't a lot of uh, competitors or building something that is so hard that it's hard for people to copy. 
Yeah, having a big moat certainly can be a uh, an advantage when you're exploring new space in the in the tech industry because you certainly want to make sure that you protect your gains and your ideas as you bring them to fruition. Let me yeah. ask about something that you talked about there about AI changing so rapidly. What do you see as the future of AI's integration into our everyday lives? I think every user-generated content has the possibility to be AI-generated. So when we look at emails, we have had historic email data for like decades and decades and decades of training data that we could train on. And the similarity of emails that you receive, take for instance, let's say you have uh, a bouncy castle rental company. You receive a bunch of uh, emails from, from customers and every email is just slightly different than the other one. But on the bigger picture, it's almost the same thing. And so we have so much data that we can use to train AI and then AI could possibly just be the co-pilot for most of our user-generated content. Thinking of YouTube scripts, I do YouTube. Um, thinking of emailing, thinking of um, first drafts for uh, uh, blog posts and things like that. So I see the possibility where AI is like a co-pilot. I don't see it as being a replacement to uh, current uh, current human activities, because for that to happen, it has to be able to complete the task end to end. And there has been some um, innovations with AutoGPT and maybe AGI, they're still not production ready. You know what I mean? So I just feel like the integration with AI and humanity would be something like, I, I try to describe it as having a partner that works with you just that when you go to sleep, it continues to work. So some, something that gives you like a 10x productivity boost. Let's go back to talking about Addy AI. Where do you see this company in five or maybe even 10 years from now? I see a future in the near term where every enterprise company has a specialized AI model that are, that, that's being used for specific things. And for us, we're concentrating on emails. We want to be able to provide the underlying infrastructure for like every company to take all their company data and then train an AI model that would just automate the email process. Email sucks. Uh, when I talk to customers, they spend 80, 90% of their time, like everything happens via email. And then in order to fix productivity, in order to fix uh, correspondence in the workplace, we have to fix emails. Michael, before we let you go, I got to ask, you're a young entrepreneur. What advice would you share with others who are just starting off in their entrepreneurship journey? Being able to have a, an autotelic personality and also being able to pursue many different things at once and not trying to do one thing really well at a super young age. Michael, that's great advice. Thank you so much. We know how important entrepreneurship is to the success of our region. And you are very much a key piece in all of that regional success. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining us today on Silicon Valley Vibes and sharing with us your innovative work in the AI space 
and strengthening our larger innovation economy. Thank you, Peter. And uh, I hope you're having a good time uh, using our, our platform. And uh, uh, if you have any feedback for us, please let us know. We're constantly learning and trying to improve the product. Thank you. Well, it certainly improved my writing and my workflow. So you guys get credit for that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, we're happy to hear that. We'll be back with more Silicon Valley vibes after this. Hi, Shannon Diatley Johnson, SVP and Head of Events at SVLG. Save the date for SVLG's 11th Annual Energy and Sustainability Summit, presented by Western Digital at the Oracle Conference Center in Redwood. Everyone's welcome to register at svlg.org forward slash events. We look forward to seeing you soon. Hi, this is Vivi. Welcome back to the conversation and the innovation on Silicon Valley Vibes. Welcome back to SVV. We're going to shift from our focus a bit from AI to EVs. I caught up with Uber's global sustainability policy lead, Adam Gromis, to talk a little bit about Uber's work in this space. In the first half of my conversation, we delved into what he was hearing from the people behind the wheel and their experience in transitioning over to new technology. As we know, introducing new things into the atmosphere are always challenging and new, and Uber has a very unique perspective and approach when it comes to making sure that people who drive on the platform are also contributing to the zero emission future. Yeah, this was a very ambitious podcast episode, listening uh, to Adam talk about their goal at Uber to get to zero emission goals uh, by the year 2030, which is not that far away and how they see drivers as being essential to that larger company vision. So I was really fascinated about this. Let's listen in. Adam, it is so good to see you. How are you? Your hair is perfect as usual. <laughs> hey, Nadia, how are you? You're, I was gonna say the same about you. Oh my God, it feels like we haven't missed a beat. I, it's been too long. I know. I was going to say it's been like literally a month of Sundays and all types since we've even like accidentally crossed paths or been on like email chains together. No, so too long. <laughs> Amazing. So Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. Totally looking forward to this conversation. You know, we go way back to the days of Uber on Market Street. Um, remember, I remember vividly the first day I met you when you joined the team. And we sat next to each other. We sat next to each other, the energy you brought to the team, the conversation, but also you got us all very smart very quickly on issues of EV sustainability and what we should be doing. So before we jump to the good stuff of the conversation, tell me what's going on. Give me the highline, like what's happening in the world of EV from your perspective? How are things? Where are we going? Oh man, well, I, I'm very excited. The world has changed a lot since you and I first met each other at Uber in 2017. Um, but uh, you know, nowadays Uber has an incredible commitment. So Uber, you know, at Uber in general, Uber wants to change the way that people move. Uh, but you know, we want to change the way that people move for the better. And so Uber committed to uh, 100% zero emission mobility by 2030 in the US, Canada, and Europe, and by 2040 everywhere we operate. So more than 70 countries around the world. And what does that mean? Zero emission mobility means uh, the trips on Uber for passengers are fulfilled by either zero emission vehicles, uh, by micromobility, or by public transportation. Uh, and those are very bold, ambitious, goals. If you compare that with, say, some of the most ambitious um, plans from, say, governments, like let's take California, which has a very ambitious goal of 100% new car sales 
uh, in all ZEVs uh, by 2035. Not only are we five years ahead of that commitment, but that's new car sales. Our, our aim is for 100% of the trips that we serve to be in zero emission nodes by 2030 uh, in the US, Canada, and Europe. So we're very proud of that. Now, of course, how are we going to do that? And uh, so we focus on, on three areas. One, supporting drivers make the transition. Two, uh, helping consumers make it easy, push a button, get a clean ride. And then three, being transparent about our progress, both where we are today, where we want to go tomorrow. And I'm pleased to say that in all categories, um, we've made some big progress over the last couple of, uh, of years. Um, I know back in the day when I was focused on EVs in another life, one of the biggest things we talked about was consumer education, awareness, and adoption. And what I love about Uber is it's changed the way that people think about mobility and travel, but also it's opened people up to new things and like widened folks' aperture when it comes to, you know, adopting new things and trying new things. So I'm curious to hear, like, what are you hearing from both riders and drivers about this move? Are there any questions that are top of mind? any, you know, unreadiness, or is there like general excitement about new technology being able to sort of do their part when it comes to clean mobility? Yes, yes. Well, and you and I share some background. One of my first jobs was working for the California Air Resources Board um, about 20 years ago, um, where we would run ride and drives to help uh, consumers, uh, school children, local utilities get into EVs and learn about the technology. Um, and that was the way we reached out um, 20 years ago. Fast forward the tape, and and now Uber is completing more than 20 million all-electric trips every quarter in the U.S., Canada, and Europe. 20 million all-electric, zero-emission tailpipe trips on the platform. So we're running the biggest ride and drive in the world. Um, and that really excites me from a policy perspective. It really excites me from a local green economic recovery perspective. And we'll get into all those things. But just to give you a perspective on, on how to size that, what does that mean, 20 million trips? Um, there's uh, last year, in the late parts of last year, about 2 million battery EVs were sold around the world every quarter. Um, in the late part of last year. We're reaching 20 million trips on the platform. So it's very likely that many consumers will have their first EV experience on Uber, which is really exciting. It's really exciting from the perspective of engagement, from outreach. And to your point, uh, there was a fantastic study that um, Consumer Reports put out um, a couple of months ago with, with support from EV Noir and a couple other groups that looked at consumer engagement, consumer education, it still remains very true today that consumers, uh, broadly speaking, are unaware of battery EVs, unaware of the benefits they bring. And quite unfortunately, the awareness levels are, are disproportionate and, un, and uneven across society. And so black and brown groups, underserved communities, lower income households are even less aware. And part, partly their answer to that is because their neighborhoods have not seen EV charging. Uh, their neighbors do not own EVs. Um, and most of us rely most on the people we love and our friends and, and neighbors for information, for reliable information. So uh, you need to see your family member, your, your, your neighbor, your buddy have an EV before you're willing to even consider it. Which is why when I flip it to the driver's side, we're even more excited because uh, what we hope is if, if we can be successful, uh, along with partnerships with cities and, and many of our other industry partners, we can help move uh, 
lower income household members, uh, black and brown community members, um, immigrant drivers and others to the front of the clean energy transition line to be not just a part of the clean energy revolution, but to be leading the green economic transformation in cities and to be ambassadors for the technology. So just to put a finer point on that, we, we have a partnership with uh, Hertz to make 50,000 EVs available exclusively for rent to Uber drivers in the U in the U.S. and Canada, and actually it's seventy five thousand EVs if you include our partnership with Hertz in Europe. And um, through that program, more than fifty thousand drivers have already taken part in the program to date over the last year plus. And we did an analysis that we made public a couple of months ago that looked at where the neighborhoods that these drivers are coming from that are participating in the Hertz EV rental program. And what we found was drivers participating in our, in our program in California are two to three times more likely to come from um, a BIPOC community and two to three times more likely to come from a lower income household than EV registrants in the state, in the general population. And that's not to suggest that suddenly Uber has all the answers or we've got the, the silver bullet that solves everybody problem, everybody's problems, but it does show that, um, that we're finding ways to engage a new group of drivers in, um, in EVs and put them at the forefront of the movement so that they can be ambassadors to their riders, their communities, their neighborhoods uh, to talk about and share more and learn more about the technology. And with every transaction, they're earning income, which they tell us they're saving on gas for. Um, they're, that those are local transactions that are, that are available in the, in the local economy. And those are consumer impressions for the rider. No, I love it. I think that number you said bears repeating again, 20 million. That is phenomenal. The other point that I want to touch on that you raised was mentioning one of my favorite organizations, EV Noir, but also mentioning the fact that there is a population of driver that driver and consumer that sometimes isn't thought about when it comes to, you know, cutting edge technology or being like an early adopter. And what I think is very powerful about what you just said is that you are debunking a, a misconception and you have a very solid fact and proof point of there is willingness to adopt among this population if you talk to them and you engage them. But also once people are exposed, you know, they see the value in it and are not as, as hesitant as some people may think. Um, the other point, and I love the partnership too with Hertz. So being able to work and figure out ways to sort of solve one side of the chicken and egg dilemma that is, you know, always talked about when you talk about EVs. So I do want to talk about infrastructure because mm -hmm. you also have some interesting partnerships when it comes to building out EV infrastructure. And I know that yeah. because you're working in know of EV Noir, doing so in a manner that is different, but also mm. making sure that the reach and presence of this key part of the you know, electrification puzzle is there. Mm. Tell me a little bit more about that. And for us, you know, EV charging is, is a huge piece of the puzzle, of course, that needs to, be, needs to be solved. What we found is that when you look at places where drivers who use our app, where they live and where they work, and then you compare that map to places where EV charging has been built, uh, it looks like a photo negative. It's almost like two missing, missing puzzle pieces. Drivers today on who use our, our app uh, live and work in places where EV charging has not been built or developed. And um, there was you know, a great report put out by Cal Matters uh, a couple of weeks ago now that shows that you know, EVs uh, in California, in, in a state with equity programs, in a state with um, a focus on EV equity, um, even to this day, Cal EVs are unevenly distributed to mostly white, mostly wealthy areas and households. And as a result, that's where the charging has gone. 
both to those neighborhoods and to the places where those folks go to shop and 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 play. And so that's not good enough, California. That's not good enough uh, for anyone. And what we need to do is change the landscape of where EV charging is served, not only because it, we want to serve those folks who want to do work with EVs, um, but because we have an opportunity to right-size the infrastructure to the need. And if we serve more EV charging in areas where high mileage, high utilization drivers like rideshare drivers, like taxi drivers, like working drivers all, all across America live and work, we're going to get better utilized charging, which can maybe gain a business case at an earlier time frame. We're going to see uh, vehicles utilized more. Uh, vehicle drivers on Uber who are active uh, uh, show an emission saving potential of three to four times what the general population shows if they get an EV. Um, and that's just, not just me saying that, that's folks like UC Davis saying that. Um, and that means that we can build infrastructure that's better utilized, served EVs that are better utilized, and therefore get the emission savings, get the local economic gains, get the equitable participation um, that we want to see as a company uh, that I know governments are working towards as goals, and that certainly the, the communities who are most impacted want to see. So that's where we see the opportunity. As it relates to specific partnerships, we've had long-standing partnerships with folks like EVgo, uh, who has the, they operate the largest public fast charging network in the country, uh, with Wallbox, who have a great um, home charging product, a great L2 product. Um, recently, we signed a new global contract with uh, BP Pulse. A lot of folks might say, wait, BP, aren't those the guys that do, uh, you know, gas stations and stuff like that? And the answer is yes. And, and they have, uh, in fact, one of the, the, the best um, retail um, footprints in urban areas, which then becomes really interesting because with, with, with BP Pulse, they're looking to put fast charging in those petrol forecourts in the places uh, where people go to get gas. And what, what is interesting to me and wasn't obvious at first is that that's where drivers are today. And meeting drivers where they are today is all part of the solution set because we have to meet folks where they're at. Silicon Valley Vibes will be back after this quick message. I'm Ahmad Thomas, CEO at the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. As part of our acceleration agenda, I'm here to announce SVLG's new working group on responsible AI. It's the first initiative we're rolling out under our new Technology and Innovation Center of Expertise. We recognize the tremendous potential of and profound interest around this new technology, and we're committed to ensuring that AI is developed and implemented in a responsible way. The working group is co chaired by SVLG member companies Google and Johnson & Johnson. As the group takes shape, we look forward to working with industry experts, academics, and other stakeholders to bring diverse voices, perspectives, and disciplines to the table. If you'd like to get involved, please visit svlg.org to learn more. Next on Silicon Valley Vibes, part two of Nadia's conversation on EVs with Uber's Adam Gromis. Welcome back to SVV. So Nadia, in the second half of your conversation with Adam, you really get into the three Ps, public, private, and policy. You know, I will say if anybody has ever had a conversation with either Adam or myself, policy always is something that comes up. What a lot of people don't think about top of mind is that Uber is a global company. So it's been active in the policy space when it comes to transportation electrification for quite some time. And as we all know, ambition is core to how Uber operates and thinks about things. So truly believes in that 
that go big or go home. This conversation was very interesting because it called out a lot of things that, you know, California as a state is leading on when it comes to the transition to electric vehicles and also called out the role that the private sector can play, but also making sure that both parties are working together in tandem towards shared goals with mutual understanding. I think what's most interesting about the conversation is some of the things that Adam had on his wish list for how policy should continue to evolve as we get closer to our goal of zero emission travel. Check it out. That's where drivers are today. And meeting drivers where they are today is all part of the solution set because we have to meet folks where they're at. I want to do a little bit of a pivot to, you mentioned, you know, governments paying attention, public, private sector, et cetera. You know, California has things like the clean mile standard. We know that in the bipartisan infrastructure law, there's a good amount of money for EV charging, EV infrastructure there. Keen to hear your thoughts on sort of the role of the public sector and how the public sector can be working in tandem with the private sector and those who are innovators like you all trying to figure out how to help give a tailwind to all the excitement and interest that we have now about electrification and zero emission travel. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I, Dara has this great uh, phrase uh, that I really like, which is that climate's a team sport uh, and that uh, you know we recognize uh, humbly that we, we certainly won't be successful by ourselves uh, on this matter. Uh, there's a lot of folks in both the private and public sector that have been at EVs a lot longer. Uh, than, than Uber has been. Um, but recognizing, too, that these are unprecedented problems that need unprecedented solutions. It's, we've never taken an entire sector, the transportation sector, and decarbonized it, fully electrified it. Uh, we're very much in the early stages of doing that. And that's going to require everybody rowing in similar directions on both the industry side, on the government side, on the advocacy and, and public side. Um, and, you know, governments, quite frankly, deserve a lot of the credit for the leadership here over the years. Having my first job was at California Resources Board, so I'm somewhat biased in this. Uh, but CARB and other entities from US EPA to um, uh, folks in, in the EU and in, in the United Kingdom and around the world have, have played a huge role in making EV markets possible. It's still true to this day that um, EV markets are... Uh, they start with a, a heavy foundation of policy. You won't find an EV market around the world from Norway to the Netherlands to uh, California to China that doesn't have a solid policy framework um, that is supporting that EV market. And of course, EV charging then is, a, is an even bigger component of that that has uh, been led by not, not just governments and taxpayers, but also ratepayers on the utility side. Utilities deserve a lot of credit um, for, for putting their skin in that game. So we won't be successful um, unless governments continue to be ambitious uh, with policies that drive EV supply. Um, I, and before I launch into this, I, I should say I, I have a, somewhat of a framework for the policies that are needed, and we need them in three areas. So number one is EV supply. We need, we need policies that promote EV supply, not just any EV supply, but affordable EV supply. EV supply that um, spills into the secondary market where drivers on Uber most need to see it because drivers on Uber, whether they buy a gas car or an EV, they rely on that secondary market um, by and large uh, to acquire those vehicles. Uh, so first, EV policy, uh, EV supply policy. Second is EV charging. Uh, EV charging um, is is really the, the ceiling within which the EV supply can work. Um, and so we need adequate supply of EV uh, charging, not just 
um, in cities and public areas that are fast charging and things like that. But home charging is is a really key solution. And for any driver that we can help get off street parking or even on street parking in, in areas that um, there may be high, say, renter areas or, or uh, multi unit housing, uh, we need to see solutions that can extend drivers affordable overnight slow charging solutions because that'll be the probably the cheapest path for both governments and for industry and consumers and so ev charging is, is area number two area number three was less obvious to me going into this but um user incentives uh and pricing policies including carbon pricing and road pricing um and natty when you and i were at uber we looked at a lot of these um because they started to become very attractive um but what's interesting to me is that you you it's apparent in our data that these policies play a heavy, heavy role. A place where Uber is electrifying fast, um, faster than most places, if not um, at the the highest pace around the world, uh, which was not obvious to me as a Californian, as an American, um, uh, which sometimes brings its its own biases. But um, London, London is the place where Uber is moving towards EVs faster than anywhere else. London does not have some of the same policies as California, does not have some of the same levels of government spending on EV charging and others. But what they have that um, California and the U.S. lacks are uh, road pricing policies that are really first class if you look the world over. Uh, So they have two in London that are worth mentioning. The first is a congestion charge, uh, which means at congested hours in the morning and the afternoon when folks commute, um, you have to pay for the privilege of movement in your car. uh, And they exempt EVs as a part of that policy. That exemption will eventually go away. But in the early years, um, uh, that exemption remains where EVs don't have to pay the congestion charge. So that's uh, about, um, well, I'll say the total amount in a moment. And then uh, there's a uh, ultra low emission zone, meaning they charge for pollution. So if you drive a diesel car, you got to pay more for the privilege in greater London area. And so if you combine those two, if you're in a diesel car at a congested hour, you have to pay about 25 pounds a day for the privilege of driving a diesel car in London. Um, and you don't in an EV. And so that's a direct signal to the consumers in that market, to the manufacturers and auto manufacturers, to the EV charging providers, that there are better economics in EVs for more people in London than there is anywhere else. And so those types of user policies and incentives um, that are like everyday, every, everyday pocketbook type um, uh, initiatives, those have a huge role Staying in that public policy space, you know, given your knowledge and experience in the space, if you had, you know, a magic wand or a genie to kind of pull out of a bottle, what would you recommend for us in the U.S. and us in California? What policy lever, what policy tool, what policy program should we be thinking about maybe more deeply or maybe differently when it comes to sort of giving us that that extra push and being able to accelerate and follow the model of what we've seen be like really successful other places? Yeah, but let's use the three-legged stool to go back to it. So starting on the supply side, California has some, to to be clear, California has some revolutionary world-class EV supply policies, including the ZEV mandate um, and others. Um, They're they're implementing another one, ACC2, uh, which will be very important, not just for the supply of EVs and driving towards the governor's goal of 100% EV sales by 2035, but starts to create um, some really important 
policies and standards around um, information about vehicles and batteries, um, which should help create a maintenance market, should help create a secondary, support the creation of a secondary market because you need your vehicle to be serviced in a number of places. You need to understand the battery that you're buying in the secondary market. And so those types of policies, while not obvious on its face, are going to really help support um, a secondary market. On the EV charging side, the state similarly has a lot of fantastic programs. Nobody spends more on EV charging, especially on a per capita basis, than the California Energy Commission. Big kudos to the commissioners there um, who have a remarkable set of programs and, in fact, have the only program I'm aware of globally that is an EV charging uh, grant program for charging built for purpose for rideshare and other uh, urban mobility uses. That's the CARTS program, um, of which we were very happy to participate with a number of industry leaders um, in, in that program. Um, lastly, on the incentive, user incentives, I it, politically it would seem impossible, but I would be remiss in, in highlighting the London program. I think a, a road charge program, I know Los Angeles has looked at this, I know San Francisco has looked at this, but CARB and others at the state level could play a role in making it easier and cutting tape to make it easier for, for locals to uh, pursue programs like this. But a road charge uh, that would basically be the equivalent of a low carbon fuel standard, but for miles in the state would be amazing, right? Let's um, let's put a put a charge on fossil miles and let's uh, give a reward to ZEV miles. Uh, and you can imagine that across vehicle classes, you can imagine that across a couple of areas, but having a road user charge like that, um, that everybody could get behind. I know it sounds politically infeasible, but it's difficult for me to uh, understate the power of such a program because I see it playing out in London. And I just don't have a, another place where in our data, we see drivers switching to EVs so fast. So I do want to ask, start asking some, I guess, some wrap up questions. And this one is more personal about you and your thoughts and what you've learned. So you've been working in the role, you've been doing this with global coverage for what, six years or so now? Oh God, it's coming up on seven. Can you imagine? <laughs> Congratulations. That's a that's a milestone for sure. I know. Yeah, people don't do that in tech, especially these days. Not at all. That means two things. You love it and you're also constantly challenged. So something like that. Something like that. <laughs> um, I'm curious to hear what's your biggest learning that you've like had over your period, your tenure, you know, working in the space in tech, but also sort of being out and about and engaging with others on the space. Well, um, I think there's a place for advocacy, and maybe that means that there's just a place for people like me in the world. I, I, at the end of the day, I don't really know how to do much other than advocate, and I, I play an internal advocacy role, an external advocacy role. Nadia, you, you, I've seen you wear similar hats, so I, I'm hoping you, you believe in similar paths, but I think there's a role for advocacy. We need to have, advocate for the things that not only we believe in, but the things that we know are good for our families and our communities, and, and there's a place for that. Um, and that, that's, that's a slog. That's an ongoing, like always on type, um, type role, um, that, that needs to be there. The chicken littles of the world that are calling on the right things. Um, so I think that there's a place for that. Second, I think, um, there's just no way to do anything by yourself anymore. If there ever was, um, uh, I don't know if there ever was, but, you know, I think, you know, especially in America, we have narratives around sort of single heroes and stuff like that. And I, I just have never seen that really play out in my professional life. Um, and, and I am uh, the benefactor of, of working with a lot of people that are way smarter than me. And, and actually, I get to rely on the fact that I count on the fact that I will run into people that are a lot smarter than me that I can partner with and, and learn from and engage with people like you, Nadia, truly, um, who um, have a lot of 
you know, have access spaces that I don't know nothing about and that, um, that we need to connect on and, and learn from. So I do think, I think partnership and, and engagement is, is really critical for coming up with solutions that are going to work and last. Um, you know, and, and maybe the last thing I would just say is um, ambition. There's a place for ambition. We need it in climate. And, you know, I, I think reasonably a lot of folks would say that our 100% goal by 2030 is, is somewhat crazy sounding. Um, uh, but uh, we're kind of counting on others to up their ambition. We're, we're taking a bit of a leap of faith that others will also increase their ambition. Quite frankly, this goes back to folks like Carve and their leadership years and years ago, making crazy policies out there that nobody thought was possible. And yet, as we as we move in time, uh, we find that we, we, we unlock new ideas. It forces people to uh, to, to look at the problem and engage with it more. And we find that there's, there's folks willing to stand up and say, you know what, I'm willing to take that crazy leap. You're willing to take it, I'm willing to take it. Um, I'll just close that comment with um, what might be my favorite quote. I, I, I realize whenever, this is dangerous because whenever you say, I have a favorite quote by this famous person because then someone will say, well, that's it's not actually that person's quote. Whoever's quote it was, it's the, my favorite, but the one I know who said it is Albert Einstein. I don't know him, but I, this is what I'm told. And Albert Einstein said that um, I, I'm not smarter than anybody else. I just stick with problems longer. And that gives me hope because <laughs> as a person who knows he's not the smartest person in the room, um, I just hope that the idea that I can stick with a problem of zero emission mobility and how to get there and look for people who are also sticking with that problem, that we can all stick together and keep pushing on it, um, I know that we can find a path through. No, I, I absolutely love it. I also know that we as a society are way better off with you in the space working on such a tough and thorny and challenging and nuanced problems. So I will give it to you for the last words. For anything you think you want to leave us with, anything you want to tell us, I will say for me, this has been dope. I know our listeners are going to love it or are loving it. Um, so I'll pass it to you to close us out. Oh, thanks, Nadia. I really appreciate that. Well, it's been such a pleasure to be on with you. Thank you for creating this space. And it's such a pleasure to be on with you in particular and, and to engage um, with with the Silicon Valley Leadership Group in this. Um, I would just say, look, uh, we, we, we want to help the Uber wants to help the world uh, move for the better. Uh, we have ambitious goals of moving everybody. Uh, who engages with our platform and particularly uh, drivers who use our app to, to move to the front of the line for, for the clean energy transition and get into um, zero emission vehicles. We can't do this alone and we're looking for partners uh, who want to take crazy leaps of faith with, with us. So we're looking forward to partnering with you and uh, cities and, and uh, others ambitious with similar ambitions around the world. And, and uh, we look forward to that, continuing that journey. Now it's time for the Silicon Valley Vibes wrap out for Peter and Nadia to give their take and a little takeaway. And so that was the conversation that we had with Addy AI and with Uber, two companies that I think are both looking at how to better serve their communities in addition to being responsible businesses. In Addy AI's case, Michael looking at his work to be an example and ultimately a resource for other young entrepreneurs coming up who maybe don't have the same resources here that they otherwise would. And for Uber, changing the way we think about mobility and making sure that it's more sustainable going into the future. You know, Peter, we love to see it on all fronts. I think what's most key for me is the fact that we had two really interesting personalities who not only shared the very important work that they're working on, but gave us a little bit of insight into who they are as people and also what motivates them. And I think that is something very special that rarely happens and I'm happy that we were able to be a part of it. And that wraps this episode of Silicon Valley Vibes. 
please like, share, and subscribe. And remember, with millions of stories in Silicon Valley, you can't always get all the details, but you can get the vibes right here on Silicon Valley Vibes. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Silicon Valley Vibes, the realest podcast on the internet made by humans and AIs. And our humans are our executive producer, Chuck Dickinson, mastering by R.R. Robbins. Our podcast is produced by the humans at the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. AI music provided by SoundRaw. Recording production support provided by the platform Riverside FM. Your AI announcer, me, BV, is provided by Eleven Labs. Speaking of AIs, did you hear they made a new artificially intelligent Oreo? It's one smart cookie. That's right, AI bakery jokes. Bet you didn't have that in your robot revolution book. VV out.